staying in the service with us. Again, we love having kids in here, and we've got a, a little bulletin that they can utilize to go through the service as well. Uh, we've been working through our confession of faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, just reading kind of paragraph by paragraph um, each Lord's Day. And we have been looking over the last couple of weeks uh, the, what our confession of faith, it takes into account the whole counsel of God's Word, what it says about divine providence. And this morning, um, we're in paragraph three that just speaks of the diversities of God's providence, that he uses different ways to accomplish his ultimate plan and purpose. And so it's, it puts it this way, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. And so that is paragraph three of uh, our confession as it relates to the diversities of God's providence. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, that's where we've been uh, all of December, and that is where we're hanging out, particularly in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and, and we've been looking at verses uh, 6 and 7, primarily verse 6, and have been kind of working through these different names of the Messiah who was to come, right? And we have established that this is a prophecy that finds its fulfillment uh, in Christ Jesus. But allow me to read, and then I'm, I'm going to uh, pray, and then we will jump right into this passage of Scripture. So this is the word of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and seven. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. God, we thank you for Isaiah 9. We thank you that, the, that this prophecy has been fulfilled in Christ, Lord. And so just as people in the time of Isaiah would look forward to this coming Messiah, Lord, we look back seeing that you were faithful you were true to your promise, and that this has been fulfilled by Jesus. And it's in him that we put our trust, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So again, we've been looking over the course of December, particularly at Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 6, and as we've been examining this passage, we've been kind of uh, a, a goal, if you will, has been to examine it, to, uh, to consider it slowly, um, and to see that the application, again, is in Christ Jesus. And the aim, the hope, is that, that after spending time here uh, in this passage, that, that it would further shape our worship and our commitment to Christ, and, and uh, we would further see Christ's commitment to us, which is a big part of what we're going to spend 
time on this morning. Last week, we looked at Jesus as mighty God, and we remembered that Jesus is is not just the creator of all things, but he's also the sustainer of everything that's made, and that includes sustaining us, right, by the word of his power, right? We considered that Jesus is also the mighty God in that he's mighty in his saving of us, that he saved us, according to the preacher of the Hebrews, to the uttermost, to the complete degree, And then we remember that Jesus is mighty for us in the midst of our temptations and our weaknesses in life, that we're to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, not strong in and of ourselves. And this morning, we're going to consider Christ as everlasting father, everlasting father. Now, this is a title that that many could consider perhaps problematic in a passage that is being applied to Jesus, this title of everlasting father. And the question really is, does this title, does it distort the doctrine of the Trinity, that our God is one God in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, is Isaiah in this passage here, he's prophesying clearly, about Jesus is he confused when he mentions Jesus, the Messiah to come, as the everlasting Father. The first thing we should do is is look at the words themselves. And I want us to consider the words everlasting Father, this title, everlasting Father. We need to consider it in light of certainly verse 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. But this word everlasting, it means the length of forever. Okay, the length of forever or without end. We as a church, we confess Jesus as the eternal God. So again, I mentioned this last week, but at Christmas, we're we're not celebrating the beginning of Jesus. We're celebrating the reality that the eternal God became man. And he became a man so that we might be brought into his family, so that we might be spiritually adopted. Okay, so everlasting, it's a, it's a word here as, as we're, we're seeking to understand it. It's a word that can be difficult for us to comprehend or to wrap our minds around in the same way that the word eternal or the word uh, infinite is difficult, right? We can't help but to think in terms of the finite, right? We can't help but to think in the context of space and in the context of time. We can't help but to think as things, um, uh, as having a beginning and having an end or, or thinking of things as old or young. But that's not how we think about the three persons of the Trinity. That's not how we think about the Lord, right? And Christ is not, he's not old. Christ isn't young, okay? Christ isn't old, he's not young. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago when I read a selection from the London Confession of Faith, but when we read, for instance, a passage like Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, many of you have that passage memorized, right? But in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth, right? When we read a passage like that, we should read it first and foremost, we should read it with a whole council of God's word in mind, meaning that we should read it as in the beginning, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth, right? We should read it that way. And secondly, we should pay particular attention to the first four words in the beginning, God, 
right? Everything else, it depends on you getting this right. Depends on you getting this right, even before our beginning, okay? Before the heavens, what's unseen, before the earth, what is seen, right? Before, before that, there was our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has, he has no beginning because God was not created. Okay, God isn't a creature. He's the creator. So in our Isaiah passage, when we read that word everlasting, that is, it relates to the Messiah, as it relates to Jesus, our mind should go to a place like Genesis 1.1. Jesus, he, he has no beginning. Jesus has no end. But what, what of that word father? What of that word father? In the New Testament, all right, we see Jesus get into that as well. And we'll consider this passage a little bit more in a minute. But consider Jesus impressing upon us the, the security that's found in him and the unity that he has with the Father. In John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, you can turn there quickly. Jesus says this. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then get this, verse 30, I and my Father am what? Am one. Am one. Or we could consider Philip's question when he asked Jesus if he can see the Father. This is how Jesus replies to Philip's inquiry here. John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the, what? The Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Why, why does John record these things for us to see so many years later? Why did Jesus speak this way? It isn't because we should, we should muddy the Father and the Son. And see, that, that, that's not why, right? They're distinct persons in the Godhead. But one of the things that we should be, that we should see being emphasized, and there's two things primarily, and I'm going to spend the majority of the sermon this morning on, on the second thing. But one of the things we see that's being emphasized is the di divine nature of Jesus here, right? That there is equality between he and the Father. But the second Aspect. The other aspect of this word father, which is used by Isaiah, is, is something that I think Jesus is getting at, particularly in John chapter 10. Again, just kind of put a, a pin mark there. We'll return to it in a minute. But that word father there, it's used by Isaiah. It means chief or it means the head of home or we could say it means the covering of the home. Okay, so chief or head of home or the covering of the home. Now, if we're tracking with this Isaiah passage, right, if we're tracking that this is a prophecy about Jesus, and if we remember that this is a prophecy about deliverance, then we should also remember that this passage, while immediately relevant to Judah, is in a more important way relevant to all of us. Isaiah, and again, verse 6, for unto us, unto us, a child is born, right? Unto us, a son is given. Right? These names are these titles that we've been looking at, if you will, 
right, are given to us on the basis of our relationship with this child, right? In other words, we should see in these titles that one of the things that's being communicated to us relates not just to the divine and eternal nature of Jesus, but also how he relates to us covenantally, how Jesus relates to us covenantally. And again, I'll bring us back to John 10 in a moment to kind of reinforce this. But, but what I want us to see here is that Isaiah isn't confused. Okay, he's not muddying the waters between the Father and the Son, and neither is Jesus in these passages of Scripture that I'm showing you here in John. Okay, the Lord, through Isaiah, is prophesying about the significance of God becoming man and representing us representing us. And, and again, both of my points this morning, they really consider this aspect of Christ's title, him representing us. So if you're taking notes and kids, if you're following along, you can use your, your parents' bulletin to write this down. But Jesus, he is our everlasting father because he's the head of the church. Okay? Jesus is our everlasting father because he's the head of the church. Right? Apart from Christ is our everlasting father, our, ever, our, our representative or our head. We're left with who? We're left with Adam. Right? We're left with Adam. This is the very case that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 18. We have it on the screen. You're more than welcome to, to turn there. It says this, Therefore, as through one man's offense, okay, that, that's the first Adam, through one man's offense, the one man there, okay, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Okay, stop there for just a minute. Right, in the garden, Adam, right, the, the first man, he represented all of us. Right? He represented all of us. Nobody's off limits from being represented by Adam in the garden. Okay, and it was, it was his disobedience, his defying of God's command that resulted in the far-reaching nature of the curse. In other words, the curse is comprehensive. Okay, the curse is comprehensive. The curse, evil, it isn't something that, that God created, right? God didn't, he's not the author of evil. God didn't create evil. Rather, we should think of it like a tumor, Okay, a, a, a malignant growth that distorts and deforms and poisons all that God created and called good. Right? We, we see the pains of childbirth and the complications that come along with the command of be fruitful and multiply, right? We see how the husband and wife relationship and the uniqueness and the gift of two genders, male and female, and God's good, wise, and different purposes for those two genders, we see that distorted. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you, Genesis 3, 16. We see thorns and thistles in our labors. And I tell my oldest son, probably to the point of nausea for him, that everything worth doing is hard, and everything just takes a long time. Everything takes a long time. Right. But our labors, they're met with resistance. Right? Our labors are met with delays, including our overcoming of our own sluggish, lazy hearts. 
Adam's disobedience introduced death into our world. Right? Introduced a physical death. Our, our bodies actually break down and struggle with various sicknesses. Right? The, the drain on good health is a constant reminder that things aren't as they ought to be. Adam's disobedience introduced even more significantly a spiritual death. And there's a spiritual death. As Paul says elsewhere, apart from the intervening work of Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Right? Not struggling, not on life support, but spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Right? It's because of the sin of the first man, Adam, our head, our representative, that we have a sin nature. We have a sin nature. King David, as he mourned his personal sin against God and Uriah and Bathsheba, he says this in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Because of the sin of Adam, we're by nature enemies of God. Romans chapter 5, verses 7 to 8. We're at war with one another. The result of the first sin in the first garden by the first representative. And with every disobedience, with every particular sin, with with every hostility that we commit and we nurse inwardly, we add our amen to the first sin in the first garden. All right, that's where Adam's headship got us. That's where his headship got us. And... We can't point and blame him because, again, our sins demonstrate our own particular, our actual sins. They demonstrate, or at least they should demonstrate to us that we would have done the very same thing because we do the very same thing every day, right? But the Apostle Paul, he goes on in Romans chapter 5. He doesn't end with the first Adam, and I'm very grateful for that, aren't you? Right, he, doesn't end with a very, he doesn't end with the first Adam. Right? As many of you know, he directs our attention to the second Adam, who we just sung about a moment ago, to directs our attention to a better Adam. Right? He directs our attention to what Adam should have been, but never was. In other words, he directs our attention to a new head, to a new representative, to our new covering over the household. Look back at verse 18 with me, and we'll read through verse 19 here. Again, we've, we've, we've seen the comprehensive nature of the disobedience, where the, the first Adam got us. Right now, now, now we see where the second Adam gets us. It says, therefore, as through one man's offense, again, that's the first Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act. Right, there's the second Adam. Through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Right? Verses 18 and 19 of Romans chapter 5. Right? Do you see the, the compare and contrast there that Paul's getting at? Right? Do you see the superiority of Jesus in his fatherly role to you and me? Right, if you were to read all of chapter 5, Paul's argumentation would become even clearer to you. Right, but the Holy Spirit of God through Paul, he's preaching to us this morning at Deer Park Fellowship that there is a superior representative in Jesus. 
right, in Christ, right? Jesus is our father. He's our head. He's our covering covenantally speaking, right? He's our representative and his representation leads to our justification. It leads to our salvation. It leads to us being made right with the triune God, right? Jesus's headship is the undoing of the curse, right? It's the undoing of the curse. If through the first Adam, judgment and condemnation came, through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, justification and life and us being made righteous came. And Jesus did this by doing what the first Adam should have done, right? The first Adam should have crushed the dragon, should have crushed the serpent who's the devil in the garden, the moment that the serpent sought to deceive his wife, right? As the head of the home, he should have taken care of his family. But he didn't. In contrast, Jesus fulfilled the very prophecy that God preached to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is God preaching the gospel. God says this, and I, again, God speaking, will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3, 15. Again, that's God preaching the gospel. Right? The, the seed of the woman. Right? That brings us ultimately to the incarnation, doesn't it? It brings us to the incarnation. The virgin gave birth to a son, to the son, the son. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And it was that son, it was that son that crushed the head of the serpent. Right? It's the second Adam that accomplished what the first Adam should have done. In Christ's obedience, his dealing with Satan, it had a direct impact on us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who was the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of the church. He's our covenant keeper. And because our representative bodily and eternally rose from the dead, so shall we one day because we follow the lead of our everlasting father. We follow his lead. And this gets us into another aspect of Jesus' co- his covenantal relationship with us. The second point this morning, if you're taking notes. Right? Jesus is our everlasting father, and that means you are eternally safe in him. Right? Jesus is our everlasting father, and that means that you are eternally safe in him. One commentator says it like this. The impossibility of true believers being lost in the midst of all the temptations which they may encounter does not consist in their fidelity and decision, but is founded upon the power of God. That is really good news. I'm going to read it one more time just in case we don't quite understand how good of news that is. The impossibility of true believers being lost in the midst of all the temptations, which we should know are many, right? which they may encounter does not consist in their fidelity and decision, but is founded upon the power of God, the power of God, right? In other words, our eternal security, it rests in God keeping covenant with us. 
It rests in God keeping covenant with us, not us keeping covenant with him. And this is good news because it's impossible this side of eternity to keep covenant with God. It's impossible. God made the covenant with us and he keeps the covenant with us. Right? And I think this is lost on us from a practical standpoint. We say to ourselves, yes, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it is in our works. Yet we think, we think that we're preserved or that we're kept by God through our good works. Yes, it's grace that initially saved us, but it's works that are going to see me home. No. Right? It's not our faithfulness. It's not our faithfulness that is the basis of our keeping the salvation that we were gifted with. In other words, we, we, we shouldn't think that once God saves us, that he keeps us, again, through our good works, or he keeps us through our keeping of the gift that he gave us, right? We push that gift illustration too far. And Christ... Again, and this should be immensely comforting to us, right? Especially when we know our sins, when we know our proclivities. All right, Christ, according to Hebrews, right? He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Some of your translations say that he's the author and he's the what? Finisher. Finisher. Right? Begins it and he ends it, right? He sees, sees it to completion. Again, bringing in the, 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 the uttermost there. Our salvation, the entirety of it, right? It's all of God's doing and it's based solely on Christ. It's not based on you and it's not based on me. It's based solely on Christ, right? We are eternally kept safe because Christ's representation, right? His headship, his fathering of us, it did not end in his first advent, Right? It didn't end in his first advent. He is covering us for all eternity, for all eternity. If any point in our lives Christ is not our representative, we should sleep in on Sundays. Right? We have no hope. We have no hope. Right? If we at any point must represent ourselves, we're as doomed as the first Adam in the garden. All right? Now, some of you, Maybe thinking to yourself, is Pastor Joey saying we shouldn't pursue good works? Right? Is he giving somebody a license to sin by the way he's preaching this? And of course I'm not. Of course I'm not, right? If the Holy Spirit of God's living in us, we will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And someone who's truly been changed by the gospel of God, someone who's tasted the goodness of the Lord, someone who has experienced forgiveness of sin and reconciliation wouldn't exhibit the heart posture of, I'll sin so that grace may abound, right? Romans 6, 1, for very long before the Holy Spirit of God would make them miserable to the point of repentance, Right? In other words, believers walking in darkness, they will, they will be robbed of their assurance of salvation because habitual unrepentant sin robs you of your assurance of salvation. But our good works, as gracious as God is to produce them in us, is never the foundation of our relationship with the Lord. Never, never. Should we walk in obedience to God's word? Absolutely. But your faith is not in your faithfulness. Your faith is not in your faithfulness. Your faith is not in you. Your faith 
is in Jesus Christ alone from the beginning to the end. And he promises to keep you. Jesus says to our great comfort in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, revisiting the passage we looked at at the beginning. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father am one. Pay pay attention to how rock solid the Lord's fatherly commitment is to us. Jesus says, He, okay, He gives us eternal life. We don't attain it. We don't attain it. He gives it to us. Therefore, he says, we will never perish. We will never perish. Then he goes on. He says, neither shall anybody snatch you out of my hand. Church, you better believe that if the devil could snatch you out of the hand of Christ, he would do it. He would do it. But he can't. And then it's as if Jesus knows how anxious we are and, 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 and our proclivities to say, no, that's too good to be true. You know, it's, it's a fairy tale. It's too good to be true. It's as if Jesus knows that because he does know that, right? But he goes on to comfort us and he says, My Father who has given you to us is greater than all. So now we, we see, we see that, 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 that Jesus, he gives us eternal life and that we've been given to him by the Father, on top of that. Right? Then he comforts us even further by saying, nobody can snatch you out of my Father's hand. Right? Pressing into this so that we, we get it. And then he claims equality with the Father. I and my Father am one. Christian, you, you are held tightly by the Father and the Son. And this is because the Lord has saved you and the Lord is going to keep you, right? Christ's spilled blood will not go to waste. Not a drop of it. Not a drop of it will go to waste. And so Jesus, he's, he's our everlasting father, right? Jesus, he's our advocate. Jesus is our covering. Jesus is our eternal representative. Jesus is our head, And because of this, we have everlasting life, right? We have everlasting life. So let's go to the Lord and let's thank him for that this morning. God, we thank you for this everlasting life that you have given us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, for the anxious soul here this morning, God, that's wrestling with their assurance of faith, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their lives, God, to testify through your word that they belong to you. God, for the Christian this morning that perhaps is walking in darkness and habitual sin, I pray that your spirit would make them miserable to the point of repentance, God, so that they can again have the joy, the salvation that you've provided restored to them. God, I pray for the non-believer in the room this morning, God, that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. And Lord, in all things... We thank you and we rest in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is-